Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to, to be able to introduce uh, 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 someone I believe known to all of you, uh, Moises Naim, senior uh, fellow at the uh, Carnegie Endowment for Peace currently, but perhaps at least from my experience, best known for his 14-year uh, tenure at, uh, uh, on uh, the journal Foreign Policy. As I said to him over lunch, one of the things that was most notable was the transformation of that journal into the engaged and active uh, uh, journal, one which took issues of, of the South, the topic of our conference, seriously broadcast them, and, and in that way began to tell a different story. Uh, about the international uh, community and, and the globe, the changing globe. So for that, we're, we're grateful for that in itself. Um, you also have a book that's been published on the end of power at the title of your talk, and I believe you'll be speaking to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris, uh, Center for the Global South, Enrique Garcia, my friend and uh, the CAF for inviting me. Thank you all. The fact that it's uh, 5.30 and you're still here is a good testimony uh, to the rich uh, content and the nature of the conversations we have had so far. And so I'm now challenged uh, to add value to the, uh, the value that you already gotten since today. And I, I heard uh, clearly that there are drinks waiting and the only reason you're not drinking is me. <laughs> and so I'll try to be brief and compress uh, uh, the book as quickly as I can and be provocative. And I, I hope to be short and uh, leave plenty of, well, leave some time for you to, to, to react and comment and question. Uh, the title of the book is The End of Power, but the reality is that it's the end of power as we know it. Uh, uh, the central message of the book is that power has become easier to acquire harder to use and easier to lose. Uh, power has become more fleeting, power has become uh, uh, more accessible, but also much, much harder to use. And that is true for the President of the United States, for the President of CAF, from the leaders of LSC, and the Chinese Communist Party, and large corporations. Uh, it is my, I contend that this is a global trend that is touching everyone everywhere. Uh, it includes uh, uh, both uh, um, the South and, and the North, and uh, uh, companies in the private sector and governments, uh, NGOs, political parties, churches, sports uh, organizations, and cultural organizations. Uh, you all know that uh, there is something going on with power. Intuitively, uh, you already know that just by opening up uh, the newspapers or your iPads or uh, listening to the news, uh, you know that power is shifting. Uh, we know, and it's plenty of evidence, that power is shifting from west to east, from north to south, from presidential palaces to public squares, from old, large companies to young startups, and increasingly, even from men to women. Not as much as we would, have, uh, we would like, but still, there, is, there are more women today in positions of power than in the past, and there are more empowered women around the world, less than the 50-50 or more that would be ideal, but we are moving slowly, painfully uh, uh, in that direction. Uh, it is my contention, however, that power is not just shifting. Power is decaying. So power is moving from A to B, but when B gets the power, it can do less with that power 
than what uh, A was able to do in the past. Uh, and that is um, true, as I said, in a variety of, of, of realms of human activity. Uh, think about national politics, for example. Uh, in, only in 1990, the world had 69 democracies. Today, we have 117. Of course, we have reversals, we have dictators, we have uh, very brutal uh, authoritarian regimes, but even those are being undermined, constrained. It's harder to be a dictator these days than uh, what it used to be. But it's even harder to be a democracy, and it's even harder to be the head of state uh, or the of government of a democracy. Uh, even though half of the world today, half of the, of the, of the population in the world today lives on, in, in, in countries in which governments have been elected, uh, the, the, the nature of that uh, exercise of power in, in, in democracies has been profoundly transformed for a variety of forces. Uh, for example, landslides, winning elections by a landslide has become very rare. If you look from 1970 to today, and you look at the average percentage of victories in elections, you will see that that, that margin has been shrinking to the point of disappearing. Of course, there are exceptions. Here and there, you find a head of state or an election when there is a landslide, 15%, 20% uh, of margin of victory, and the, the president has been given a strong mandate, the support of the people, and has a, a, a hold on, on power. That's very rare, that uh, is uh, it's almost extinct. What is typically now, and has been typical now for almost a decade, is that people, of governments, are, are elected by a hair. There's a very, very thin margin of victory. Not only voters are not giving wide margins to those that win elections, but they also give the Congress, the legislative, to the opposition. So what is normal now in the world is that democracies are becoming Italian. By that I mean very complex coalitions that have to be built with uh, different kinds of political forces trying to be brought together in order to sustain a government. Every government now needs, uh, most governments that are elected, needs to create very unwieldy, very complex, and often very unstable coalitions and arrangements and compromises with political organizations that very often don't share anything with them. And that, that, that has become a pattern. And it's not only that, uh, but we also have seen how uh, the, 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 these democratic governments have, have now been you know, there's a proliferation of independent central banks. There is a devolution of power from capitals and federal governments to state and local governments. You have mayors of cities, very often in many countries where the action, where the political action is, where innovation is, where the popular support resides, is in cities, is in mayors and governors and heads of provincial governments. And then uh, there's judicial activism around the world. Judges, magistrates are becoming the kingmakers, are becoming the ones that define uh, political issues. Issues that in the past uh, were uh, in the realm of politics are now in the realm of judges, of magistrates. Just think about the Supreme Court of the United States and the election of George W. Bush. 
think about judges in Pakistan, think about magistrates in what happened in Italy with Tangentopoli, uh, think about uh, ma in many countries, uh, even today in Thailand, uh, their judges are playing an important role uh, in, in, in the politics of that country, and so on. So we have mayors, governors, judges, presidents of central banks, and of course, uh, uh, we also have bloggers and Twitters and independent media and the new cloud of opinion makers uh, that restrict and, and constrain the activities uh, of governments. Uh, the image for a democratically elected president today that best captures, I think, the reality is that Gulliver, tied down by thousands of little strings by Lilliputians that limit what it can do. I am not at all suggesting that presidents and heads of state are no longer powerful. I'm not suggesting that the Vatican, the Pentagon, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Google, uh, or the London School of Economics and the CAF are not powerful entities. I am just suggesting that uh, those powerful entities that still exist are more constrained and more limited by a myriad, uh, what I call in the book, micropowers that may not have the ability to impose their view, but have the ability to constrain and even block sometimes what the power centers can do. Frank Fukuyama calls these vetocracies, uh, vetocracies. By that he means political systems and, and regimes where you have this proliferation of uh, actors, organizations, sometimes even individuals that do not have the power to impose their view, but do have the power to veto what uh, the view of the majority is. We just saw an example of that in the United States with the Tea Party. This is a small group of insurgents that do not represent the majority of the views of the citizens of the United States, but just got organized and got enough votes to have a presence and an influence in Congress. And they were able to shut down the US government. They were almost at the verge of creating a global financial crisis uh, by, uh, in, in the negotiations about the not allowing the debt ceiling of the US government to proceed. Uh, and so that is a very good example, but you have tea parties everywhere. A couple of weeks ago, the, the Economist uh, had a cover talking about the tea parties in Europe. But it's not just in Europe, uh, just think about uh, in India. The Common Man Party, the AAM, is a party that came out of nowhere two years, three years ago, did not exist. It was founded by a civil servant uh, that is, he captured the frustration and the fact that people were fed up with the system and run uh, and won the election for, uh, for to lead in Delhi. And, now, and, and that is in, in, in India, that is a larger position of just being a mayor. Now his organization, the AAM, is also running for general, for, for, for the general elections. And he came out of nowhere. But these parties that are coming out of nowhere are becoming very common around the world. But power is not just decaying. Uh, again, it is a very good example of uh, uh, the Tea Party. It's an excellent example of uh, a political entity that uh, in which got hold of power, power became easier to acquire. It was harder for them to use it. They did use it, but they misused it. And as a result, they lost it. Today, the Tea Party of today is not, does not wield 
the power that it had two or three years ago. Uh, and, and think about another very good example is Mohamed Morsi in Egypt. Mohamed Morsi, again, easier to acquire power. Who would have said that a bunch of people in the streets would have overthrown Mubarak? Well, that happened. And who would have said that a member of the Muslim Brotherhood would be elected, democratically elected, in Egypt? Well, that happened. But then he was very fleeting in government, again. Easier to acquire, harder to use, and faster to lose it. That is not just happening in the realm of politics. It's all happening in the military. If I ask you, what are the two most transformational technologies, military technologies, the two weapons that are more transformational, disruptive in the 21st century? One is drones. The other is IEDs. Uh, improvised explosive devices, which is essentially, until now, they're landmines. You know, homemade, improvised landmines. In the Second World War, landmines accounted for 5% of the casualties of the US, the US military. In, in Iraq, it is 85%. And what do, uh, and, and, and uh, Drones are also becoming very common and very popular now. Everyone can have a drone. You, today, you can leave, uh, go to the web, and get yourself a drone. It will not be as sophisticated as the drones that are used by the US Army, but they are widely accessible. So what those two transformational technologies, military technologies, have in common? Well, they are no longer under the control of the military, of the state. In history, normally, the, the main military weapons were under the control of the state. Now, technology has transferred to the civilian population. And that has huge consequences. And that empowers, micropowers, as I call them, to challenge the mega players, the, the established uh, uh, military defense establishments in the world. And of course, the, the main example there is Al-Qaeda. Uh, it is estimated that Al-Qaeda spent half a million dollars to stage the September 11 attacks. The reaction of the United States is estimated at $3.3 trillion. If you want a, a, a benchmark there, just think that for every dollar that Al-Qaeda spent in September 11, the United States spent $7 million. One dollar, $7 million. But there, these are not just anecdotes. Uh, there are also very interesting studies that corroborate this uh, decay of power of the large military establishments. There is a Harvard scholar called Ivan Aregin Toft that decided to measure uh, the asymmetric wars. And so he identified the weak side in military confrontations by the traditional metrics used by the military, weapons and troops and uh, all of the usual. And so he discovered that in the, in, in the asymmetric wars between 1800 and 1949, the weak side lost 12% of the time. Then he extended the study, and he discovered that between 1950 and 1998, the weak side won 55% of the time. So in modern warfare, it is more frequent now that the weak side wins over the strong side. And that is a secular threat. 
I don't have the time to go into what's happening in the world of business, but that there too, uh, there's plenty of statistical evidence uh, that, that shows that power is shifting and decaying. As I said, the same is happening in organized religion, uh, in, in labor unions, in organized labor, and in all, in, I claim that in every aspect of organized human activity where power matters, power is decaying. And my definition of decay is that you are more limited in what you can do with it. So the question is why? Why is this happening? The intuition, the general intuition is that is the internet, of course. Is, that, is, there, is there revolution in communications and information and all that? And of course, the internet is very important and Twitter and Facebook and social media, of course that's very important. But remember that those are tools and tools require users and users have direction and motivation. So one needs to understand what are the drivers, what are the forces that shape the behavior of those that use these new technologies at their disposal. So I looked into this and uh, uh, there is a long list of variables. So I grouped them in three categories that I call revolutions. The first I call the more revolution. The second is the mobility revolution. And the third is the mentality revolution. The more revolution simply tries to capture the fact that we live in a world of profusion. There is more of everything, thus the more revolution. There is more people, there is more countries, more NGOs, more political parties, more universities, more terrorists, more illnesses, more, more of everything. Um, and uh, there is not just that there is more of everything, you know, pick any variable that tracks the human experience or the human condition. And look what the number for that variable was in 1990. And look at what the number is. And you'll see that it has skyrocketed in every, in, every, in every way. But it's not just that we have more. But the more we have moves more. And that's the mobility revolution. People are moving more. Ideas, ideologies, uh, uh, money, products, services, institutions, NGOs, churches, and uh, 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 all kinds uh, of uh, things are moving more. And then there is a very profound change in mentality. The University of Michigan has been running for almost 40 years uh, what they call the World Values Survey which essentially they have a survey that, that looks at what they claim is a sample that captures 85% of humanity. And for 40 years they have been asking the same things. Your values, your aspirations, expectations, hopes, frustrations, rules of engagement, how you relate to others, and what do you accept and tolerate and what you reject. If you, and I invite you to just go to the web and look it up compare the answers that humanity gives in the last few years to what it had given in the last 20 years. It's like we are living in a different planet. It's like there is a very profound change in mentality, in what people expect, in what people feel entitled to expect, to aspire, to hope. And that has profound consequences for power. The re Power requires, those that have power, have, have power because they have a, an asset or a collection of assets that shields them from uh, uh, the challenges of those that want their power. 
or those under, that, over whom they exert power and are pushing back and resisting. So these shields are becoming less protective. These shields are not protecting the powerful as effectively and strongly as they did in the past. Why? Because of the three revolution. The more revolution is enabling challengers to overwhelm the barriers. The mobility revolution helps the challengers circumvent the barriers. Remember, power needs a captive audience. If you can get around it, that's where it's harder to exercise power. So the more revolution overwhelms the barriers, the, the mobility revolution helps them circumvent the barriers, and the mentality revolution undermines the barriers. Together, they are creating this world in which power is easier to acquire, harder to use, and much faster to, to lose. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Fascinating, and I'm sure generating questions. Uh, please, uh, if I could take a couple of questions, and, and uh, Moises will uh, answer. Sir. My question is a very quick one. Uh, if, and I, I think you are is very persuasive, but if that's the case that power is decaying and become more diffused and fragmented, how are you going to govern the world? How are you going to manage global problems such as climate change if the institutions which are in place are not able to do that given this particular you know, depiction of power as described in your book? Yeah, that's a, a great question, and you're touching the heart of, of, of one of the issues. Uh, the book is very optimistic. I, I think that the trends that I describe are good ones. This is a book, this is a world uh, of opportunity, of possibility. This is a group where people uh, that have been excluded now have a better shot of being at the table, of having opportunities. This is a group where a bunch of young people can uh, uh, create a movement, can initiate change, can launch a business, can compete with large companies. Uh, this is a world uh, that is, is empowering people and creating great opportunities and great changes. Um, and so there's a lot of good news associated with this. There is one area where there are reasons to worry, and that's exactly the one uh, you, you mentioned. And, uh, and it has to do with global governance. It has to do also with the, the discussion in the, in, the in the previous panel. Uh, I have been writing about the most dangerous deficit that humanity is facing, and that deficit is in, in the supply uh, of global public goods, and you know that. Uh, the globalization and other things, that the three revolutions, have created a soaring demand for um, collective action at the international level. The number of problems that cannot be tackled by any country acting alone has exploded. We have many more problems today that require nations to work together. But at the same time that the need, the demand for that has been soaring, the supply has been either stagnant or declining. In economics, when that happens, you have inflation. In geopolitics, when that happens, you have a lot of people killed. And so that deficit, the deficit between the need for countries to work together and the incapacity of them to do so is a reality that reflects what's happening at home. Is that these countries that sit around the table to try to reach <coughs> deals on climate change, trade, human trafficking, migration, all of the long list of issues 
that we have uh, on the agenda. Can't know that in order to achieve that, they have to, first is not free, it's gonna have costs, and it requires compromises. Compromises that they know that when they go back home, they don't have the power to implement. So the end of power, the lack of power, the decay of power at home, is uh, interfering and blocking the capacity of the world to act together at the global level and take on the challenges we have. Back here and then here. Uh, Ali Miraj, LSE alumnus. Um, I found it fascinating. I, I just wondered if you'd come across a book by a UK politician by the name of Douglas Carswell. Uh, his book is called The End of Politics, and what he argues is that um, in, the, uh, in the environment that we're now living in, with the Twitterati and the, uh, those that inherit, inhabit the blogosphere, it is um, much more difficult for whips in parliament or, or bureaucrats of parties to control their politicians. And the reason for this is that if you go on Newsnight and you typically spout the party line, you look like a bit of a twit. Um, is this a trend you recognize? I do. In fact, that's a great question. Ye yes, sir. Uh, uh, in the book, I have a whole section about how party bosses have lost it. And how in the first now you have more and more around the world primaries. In the past, candidates were elected by party bosses meeting in back rooms and smoking cigars and deciding who was going to be the candidate. Now more and more around the world, the statistics are there in the book, the statistics are overwhelming in how in, around the world now you cannot afford to just anoint a candidate. You have to go through primaries. And, there, and more and more those primaries are now, even if they are for a specific party, they are now open to everyone. And that's a, a common. So, the, and then you get to Parliament and you see the sorry condition of the, what you call here the whips in the United States, they call it the Speaker. Just think about the relationship of Speaker Bremer and uh, his, uh, um, you know, the, 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 his difficulty of, you know, he would meet with President Obama and others in the White House, he would reach a deal, then he'd go back uh, uh, to <laughs> Congress only to discover that, uh, you know, the Tea Party and others would not support him. And therefore, he ended up, he was very explicit that he didn't want the government shut down. He knew that that was going to be very damaging to his own party's political interests. But he could not impose discipline uh, in his uh, members. And that is a global trend. Uh, you can see evidence of that. Uh, and you can see micro powers inside political parties and inside political machineries. You can see it's easy to detect how the emergence of micro powers that are capable of confronting the mega players that are the established uh, uh, rule makers inside political parties. Yeah. I wanted to know what the impact is this be the impact on democratic norms and processes as we know them now. For example, you are saying the 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 the, the, the party bosses cannot now just impose. But you could also have this minority, uh, one way or the other, influencing the process. For example, the Tea Party. The party, they, they will. So really, is this good? <laughs> what is this leading to? Is it more democratization? Or you think really uh, 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 democracy is, uh, as we know it, is under threat because of this small notion of power and so on? In, in the book, I make the bold prediction that we are at the verge of an era of, uh, at the verge of a wave of political innovation. If you think 
since you woke up this morning to today and until you go to bed again tonight, you, your life has been profoundly shaped by innovations that have taken place 10 years ago, in the last 10 years. The last 10 years have changed the way we, we talk, the way we communicate, we date, we divorce, we do business, we shop, everything. The level of innovation in the last decade or so exceeds the level of innovation in the last 50 years. In every aspect, uh, we have discovered more celestial bodies in the last 10 years than in the last 200 years. We have decoded the DNA. We have uh, had a huge, you know, the huge advances in physics, in medicine, in, in everything. Everything uh, has been touched by disruptive innovation. Everything except the way we govern ourselves. Not much has happened there. If I ask you, what was the last large-scale, important transformational innovation in the way we do politics or in the way we govern and organize ourselves? What would that example be? Not much. But at the same time that there is stagnation in terms of innovation in politics and governing, uh, there is huge demand. People are taking to the streets. People are repudiating and rejecting the traditional establishment. People don't want political parties. People don't like them. Uh, people are coming up with new ways. Cities are becoming, as I said, where the action is. Uh, there are all kinds of symptoms that show that there is an effervescence that is creating a strong demand for something else. And that something else is going to come. I have, it's a longer conversation about the nature of what that something else may have, but I'm sure that we are at the verge, uh, we're at the verge of a wave of political innovations that is gonna be for the better. Last question and then we have to draw to a close. Hi, Susan Nikolai with the Overseas Development Institute. Um, we've talked a lot today about inequality, be, inequality be, being one of the biggest challenges of our times, even more than poverty. And inequality goes along with concentration of wealth, which is typically, you know, links to power. Um, and I'm just wondering what your views are on, on that in terms of increasing inequality. Another great question. So there's no denying that uh, inequality has increased, especially in some developed countries, but it's also present in, in places like uh, China and uh, Russia and elsewhere. Global inequality uh, has not increased that much. Uh, we have seen global, you have, we have seen inequality in specific countries increasing. But the notion, you see, there is, we are all uh, either explicitly or inadvertently a little bit Marxist in that view that equates more concentration of wealth with more concentration of power. Well, I claim that, and that I know that is very controversial, but I claim that that has been delinked and that you can have power without having wealth. Uh, and we have seen a lot of players that you cannot claim they're powerful, but they gain a lot of wealth, uh, I, I want a, a lot of power. Uh, what I meant to say, players that are not wealthy that have gained a lot of power. Uh, and at the same time, there is no denying that you have you know, these oligarchs and these plutocrats that have huge amounts of wealth and concentration and they buy politicians and they influence governments and all that. But at the same time, the governments that they're buying are less able to deliver what they want because they're more constrained. I'm not suggesting that the link between politics and money is no longer there. It's there, but it's harder to use. On, on that note, thank you very much. A thank wonderful you. presentation. I'm going to make a very a comprehensive review <laughs> and summary of 
each one of the panels, each one of the presentations, and we'll try to repeat everything. So uh, um, we're asking them to wait for the drinks until tomorrow. No, no, simply I, I know that it's time to close and, and thank you. I just wanted to express, you know, again, uh, many thanks to everybody for your patience to attend the, the whole day. And uh, very, very special thanks to all the speakers. Uh, it has been a, from a standpoint, from a standpoint of CAP, a tremendous event, uh, very informative, uh, very rich, uh, interesting views, a lot of food for thinking about the future of our regions. And especially, I, I think it's a very, very good uh, start of these uh, events with the LSC. And this is a great partnership, and I see that uh, from what we are doing, what we have done today, uh, we are going to project new events and new, new things that will be very positive for the developing world. Uh, so thank you very much. You know, you you have heard too many good speeches, comments, and so I just wanted to say thank you, and especially say thank you to to Chris and, and to LSE because uh, of all the support and especially for the, the gratifying way in which we are working together. So thank you very much and now please your luck. Okay, thanks. And I will be equally brief. Uh, first, just endorsing uh, everything about that, that Enrique Garcia has just said about the partnership, the event, uh, th our thanks to the presenters, all of them. Uh, special thanks uh, uh, to, to, to uh, President Garcia himself, and Andreas Kohalis, uh, um, Chris Hughes at the LSE, Carolyn Varen, and of course Alvaro Mendez, who helped pull all of this together, and thanks to the teams that they brought together, and to all of you. It was a great event. I hope you take away a lot of thoughts, and, and we will do this. We will meet again in a year's time. Well,